Rise in the presence of the Lord. Just close your eyes for a second. Hallelujah. Just before we come to the word of the Lord, I just want to invite you just to take a minute. As the worship just quietly plays behind us. To ask. Ask with me. Jesus, is there anything that we need to bring to you and confess, seek your forgiveness for, knowing that he is the Lord of salvation and forgiveness. He promises to send our sins as far away as the east is from the west. Jesus, as we come to your word, I pray, Father, that you would speak, that, Lord, that there would be revival, renewal, that, Lord, you would do only that which you can do, which is draw men and women and children to yourself, that, God, that every one of us would leave this place this morning knowing that we've been in the presence of an almighty God who transforms Lord, you are here. We're grateful that you are here. And I pray, Father, that for everyone who hears online or in this room, that this would be a moment of change and transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please take your seats, ushers. Uh, I just invite you to take in the offering right now. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Welcome online as well. Good morning. My name is Glenn, and I'm one of the pastors here at Willow Park Church. So welcome if you're joining us online. We're so grateful you've chosen to do that. Good morning, church at 33. I'm assuming then everyone else is from the south. Good morning, south. South, how did it? It's great. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you. Uh, Pastor Phil is in Lake Country this morning. Uh, I know that he would love to be here as well as over there, and so he hasn't quite figured out how to make that happen yet. Uh, give him time, well, I'm sure he will, uh, he will sort that out. But uh, as you know that we returned uh, from Africa this week. It was an amazing journey, an amazing uh, time, very exciting about what we're looking to in the future. Uh, we, uh, we, came, we started coming home last Sunday at 8 o'clock our time and arrived Tuesday at 6 o'clock our time, including layovers. It's a, it's a long journey, especially now with the challenges I know some of you are experiencing in travel as well. Uh, but it was an amazing time. But I'm not going to share too much about it today. We will, uh, we will share more about it over the next few weeks. Uh, I'm excited to share the Word of God with you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn please to Luke chapter 19. It is Palm Sunday, as you've already heard. And we're going to be looking at an event in Palm, uh, not Palm Sunday specifically, but within the week uh, that's following Palm Sunday. So Luke chapter 19. It's going to look at one or two verses, and we're going to camp out here for the rest of our time. So Luke, 
Am I missing something? Oh, somebody's phone? You know what? Just so you know, the, the, uh, <laughs> this is by no way of embarrassment, but, well, whatever it takes. Um, <laughs> Phil and I did find out about the phone situation from Tanzania. We didn't hear it in Tanzania, but we heard about it in Tanzania. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so if you could switch your phones off, that would be great. Or you will, and maybe I'll just come and preach right at you, right in front of you. Something subtle. Praise Jesus. Uh, okay, let's look at this verse, Luke chapter 19, 45 to 46. And he entered the temple, this is Jesus, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. A very well-known passage in the, in the Scripture, a well-known passage when it comes to the run-up towards Easter. And as you've heard, we're looking forward to celebrating and remembering that this coming weekend. Um, when you look at pop culture or post-Christian culture that we are living in right now, there's a certain lens that people look at Jesus through, and it tends to be somebody who's very loving, very kind, somebody who kind of walks an inch off the ground perhaps, at worst, long blonde hair, blue eyes, which is impressive to say he was Jewish. Um, and also, you know, wearing Birkenstock sandals and just being chill. And then you have this. The only recorded act of violence by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The only act of violence by Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And it kind of slams the fa- into the face of modern pop culture, post-Christian culture, as to what people see when it comes to Jesus. The thing is, though, it's emphasized all the way through the New Testament. There are a few stories, a few pieces of Scripture that are found in all the Gospels. There's just a handful. And they're there because they are the most important. John puts it at the beginning of his gospel. John, as many scholars would tell you, is not necessarily written in chronological order. John mentions it right at the beginning of the gospel. All the other gospel writers mention it near the end, in Holy Week, in just after Palm Sunday. There is something to be learned about Jesus' reaction when he sees the temple just before he goes to his death. We have a lot of detail about it because it's in all four of the Gospels. So you can read each one and pick out different details that are very, very important. So we have the luxury of looking at this story from lots of different angles. But one angle that is common all the way through is this is the only time we see Jesus potentially hitting people, yelling at people, and turning over tables. Unfortunately, this scripture is used in our modern Christian uh, mindset as an excuse for Christians to be outspoken and really annoying. Well, if it was good enough for Jesus, then we should be outspoken and angry with everyone else. Yeah, but you're not Jesus. There's nothing really theological about that. There is a reason why Jesus is acting this way, and it really does slam into the face of what we see as being Jesus' normal M.O. Whereas his nice hair and trim nails and Birkenstocks, one would ask. It's not found in the temple this day, for sure, for sure. Herod's temple doesn't exist 
today. It was finally uh, destroyed in 70 AD, but we have an image in our mind as to what this temple might be, but I actually just want to show you like a 50-second video to give you an idea of the enormity of this place. So let's see if uh, we can get going with this. This is obviously computer-generated. Somebody didn't actually film this. Isn't it beautiful? There was some epic music behind it. Oh, well, never mind. So you can see this isn't some pokey little building. It was a building that was magnificent, astounding. Different doors into different areas of the temple. Each of them have significance. So, this initial temple was destroyed in 587 BC, and then they started rebuilding this temple in 516 BC, all the way through potentially to Jesus' time, where it was probably still under construction in some way. They never really finished it before it was destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus entered this temple with fire in his eyes, thunder in his voice, and a homemade whip. This is not Birkenstock Jesus. This is Jesus on a mission of transformation. This is Jesus who goes into this place with a specific purpose. And it's to realign the temple's initial purpose with what it should be rather than what it had become. The best way I can describe it is the enormity of this temple would be, and the busyness at this time of year. Imagine Costco on Christmas Eve. Everybody take a breath. Just imagine that feeling, the bustle, the hustle, the feeling of why am I here? Why did my wife take me? Or why did my, you know, why, why am I here? That's what I'm thinking. You know, that wonderful place called Costco, which wasn't big enough and now they've inflated it even more in Kelowna. But imagine that on the Christmas Eve. And Jesus single-handedly clearing it just by himself. It's like a human fire alarm. That his, the enormity of his presence, his character, his physicality, his, his ability and the spirit to clear this temple of all the people. That is not meek and mild Jesus going, excuse me, would you mind if... Uh, oh, okay, no, that's fine. Would you mind possibly, perhaps you could move your own table. Would that be all right? I'll get somebody to help you. Um, sorry to be a bother. <laughs> no. This is Jesus kicking tables over. He's got a whip in his hand. And then we read scriptures like this. Come to me, all ye that labor. Well, this is old-fashioned stuff like this. And are heavy laden, for I am meek and lowly of heart. So we have a character and a personality in Jesus that if you study this scripture, that there is a meekness. And if you look at meekness, it doesn't actually mean what we might think it means. Think of the word meekness as a, a warrior horse that is laid down, this latent power. But where is this Jesus? What's going on here? In order for us to really understand what's happening in this moment, in this narrative uh, that Luke shares with us, we need to understand that we all want the same thing. If you look at humans, and I've just come back from Africa, it's exactly the same in Africa. If you look at our desires of our hearts, they actually align with the desires of Jesus. And at the South, week in, week out, I bang on about this every week. 
because this is so true when it comes to human nature, that I might need to stand here and I need to share the Word of God, I need to show you what God says, and I need you to feel, I want you to feel empowered when you leave this place. But what I don't need to do is convince you that there is a God, because in every human and everybody who breathes on this planet, there is a sense of the divine in every one of them. There is a desire for something more. C.S. Lewis called it, it's like a, a tune or an echo from a far off land. We can just about hear it and we try and use different things to tune into it, all the time failing. But we have a common desire. And if you look at that on a micro level, you can look at our heart, you can see that we desire joy and peace and adventure. But if you look at it on a macro level, on a worldwide level, or even just on a Western democracy level, what you will actually see is that we have a built-in desire for human rights and flourishing. That is what our democracy is based on. We want to see an eradication of violence and war, of abuse, racism, sexism, uh, homelessness, hunger. We want social justice. We we want care for one another. We want to live in peace and harmony with one another. Every decent human being, whether they are Christ-centered or not, desires that. The irony is that that desire aligns exactly with the kingdom of God that Jesus promises. That's exactly, I've just described what the kingdom of God looks like. Human flourishing is the kingdom of God. Human rights is the kingdom of God. Uh, an eradication of abuse of all kinds is the kingdom of God. Jesus' desire for us aligns exactly with our own desires for us. And can I tell you, for those of you who might be a little skeptical about the church, especially now, it's a nice reminder, it's an encouraging reminder that it is a thoroughly Christian philosophy and initiation, all these things that I've talked about, all the caring for the poor, education up to a university level, hospitals, adoption, all this was initiated by the early Christians in the New Testament and just after. So the very things, listen to me, the very thing that our society longs for is provided by the very one that they don't want to follow. Mark Sayers, one of my favorite authors, I highly recommend his work called Disappearing Church and Reappearing Church, arguably, in my opinion, one of the most prophetic and astute uh, 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 it voices into our culture and culture reflection. He, he describes it this way, it's like our culture wants the kingdom, but without the king. The very way... To bring in the thing that everybody wants is through the one that nobody in our culture really wants to follow. He can bring us to a point of flourishing. He can bring it on in our lives and in our culture. And so that's the echo, isn't it? That every one of us thinks there's a better way, and you're right. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a Jesus follower this morning, if you're sat and we welcome you and we love you and we're glad that you are here and we hope that you get much out of it, but let me tell you this, that you cannot escape the ache. You can't escape that sense of something more because what we do is we just fill in that more with lots of other things in the hope that eventually we find it. All the time... Potentially ignoring the one who is actually able to bring it. 
I was praying through my sermon this morning very early, thanks to jet lag, and, um, and one of the things that came to my mind was, and I, I want to say this very lovingly, and it's been a couple of years since I've preached here, uh, so some of you, I'm very new, but so I'm going to say this very lovingly to the parents. What have we made heaven on earth to be for our kids? See, we... It's like Christianity, following Jesus, if we're not careful, becomes just an escape plan, the divine pension plan. That, you know, if you believe in Jesus, then your future's secure. Can I tell you, if you're 16 years old, you're not thinking about what happens after you die. You're not thinking about Jesus coming back. What you're thinking about is, how do I squeeze the living life out of life itself? And heaven on earth... Jesus, following Jesus about us as Christians and Christian parents, living out our Christianity in such a way where the kingdom of God is so attractive that people will hold us by the sleeve, as the Old Testament says, and say, take us with you because God is with you. That's what Christianity is about, not some divine, beautiful pension plan. And if all we're looking at is, well, what happens after you die? And you and I, some of you, grew up in church where it was that classic, well, if you don't become a Christian today and you go outside and get hit and knocked over by a bus, what happens then, gospel? Actually, the gospel is about me as a parent and as about a leader and as about a friend and a brother and somebody who comes alongside people and making Christianity look so attractive that making living out the kingdom in such a way where there's adventure in it. Our young people are looking for adventure. They're looking for a reason to live. They're looking for something to give their life to. And as parents, it is beholden on us, not the church. It's beholden on us to give them that example so we can say, follow Jesus, follow me as I follow Jesus. And even though they might stray and they might become your prodigal, they will never be in any doubt that you were totally sold out to the adventure called Christianity. That's what Christianity is about. It's like the difference between ultimate Frisbee and, and, and oh, okay, bear with me. I was thinking about ultimate Frisbee because that's the way my brain works because I actually drove past them practicing for ultimate Frisbee. And I wondered whether, and I forgive me if you get offended at this, all those professional ultimate Frisbee fans, it just looks like a sport that I kind of go, really? It's really hard to look tough when you're picking up a Frisbee. Have you noticed? You either have to do the curtsy or you have to do the leg lift. And it's really hard as a sport to pick up a Frisbee in a, in a tough kind of sporty way. And then I was thinking about whitewater rafting. I've been a few times, having been in education for many years, and it being kind of an expectation to take grads on the uh, whitewater rafting uh, trip in, uh, in Lytton. Um, that, like, that is just hold on for dear life or you're going in. It is spray in the face, blue on the lips because it's so cold. You're just like, come on, you slam into things. You're reacting, you're responding, you're laughing, you're in community in a boat, and then you got ultimate frisbee. I feel like we've made the kingdom of God the ultimate frisbee as opposed to the white water rafting. Kids want white water rafting. They want us friends to show them that it really is life and life more abundantly.
not just talking about what happens next, not being critical about the church, but actually seeing the church as the hope of the nations. And so when Jesus walks, and by the way, some of the accounts tell us that he saw and looked into the temple, then he went away and he came back. He planned what he was going to do. This wasn't a crime of passion. This was a determination. He looked into the temple and he saw this isn't the way it's meant to be. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And when he does come back, he brings transformation and reconciliation back to its original design. See, Christianity is all about reconciliation. It's a biblical word, but all it means is is there was a perfection right at the beginning of time. You can see it in people's lives. Again, it's like that echo. But it was broken. And Easter and Good Friday is about remembering that Jesus came to bring reconciliation so those who believe in him can be reconciled back to the way things should be. And then we take that into the world. Which is why we're called ministers of reconciliation. So that when this world is looking for the kingdom without the king, we can say, here's the kingdom with the king. Look at my life. And so Jesus peers into our lives just as he peers into the temple and he asks the question and he sees there's a misalignment, but he brings transformation. And so as a result, we carry on with the scripture. He says, uh, sorry, uh, Luke tells us he began to drive out those who sold. He began to drive out all that that which did not belong. He drove out things that the temple was not designed for. You see, when you look at what was actually happening within the temple, it is not in itself anything wrong. It's just in the wrong place. Because what was happening in the temple was really required because the Jews at this time of year would come from all around uh, their world and they would need to buy sacrifices in order to sacrifice for their sins. And so there's buying and selling and there's all sorts of kind of melee that's happening within the temple. It's this buzz, think Costco again. People are desperately trying to buy and sell and trade. But it was all happening in the wrong place. See, the buying and the selling, there's nothing wrong with them, but these things that were, that were uh, being exchanged should have happened outside of the temple, not inside the temple. The temple is where the presence of God belonged. That's what it represented, that's what it was for. It was where the presence of God was meant to be. And yet that culture had made the temple a place that was... A den of robbers. So there's nothing in itself wrong with the activity. It's just where the activity is placed. It's about location, location, location. It's all about where it happened. And if we look at our own lives, and let's get really serious, Christian friends, moms, dads, grandparents, it's important for us to take regular life audits. If you want to put it in more scriptural language, Paul would say, examine yourselves. To actually look at the temple of our lives, which is a very scriptural thing to do because we are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. To look at the temple of our lives and to ask the question, what is it in my life that is not inherently wrong or bad, but is just in the wrong place? What have I brought into the Holy of Holies, into the center 
as the Greeks and Greek philosophy would call it, into our telos, our ultimate goal, what is it that we have brought into the center of our lives and made it the must-have? It's now the holy of holies. And as we do that life audit, and trust me, as we do that, Christians, as we do that in the presence of the Lord on a daily basis, then thankfully he loves us so much that he's not going to walk past the temple of your life and not tell you. He is going to point out to you those things that do not belong. But be prepared. Some of those things we are told in our culture are of inherent central priority. That we are fed constantly communication that would say, you be you, you do you, your truth is your truth. Make your family your number one priority. Make your uh, spouse your number one priority. Make your goal in life number one priority. And this is the message that we receive. And all we need to do, and I say this every week pretty much at the South, is wake up in the morning to receive those messages. We get them on a constant basis. But be prepared that as we come into the presence of God... That God will love you enough to peer into the temple of your life and say, that's a good thing, it's just in the wrong place. There's nothing wrong with any of those things that I have said. But you place them into the center of your lives and suddenly you have Jesus getting pretty violent. Because he's not willing to leave you the way that you came in. And that is so, so encouraging to me. There is that highlight of superficiality in our world where the reality of what is actually going on inside, that we've become so good at pushing it down and presenting, that we've even started to believe it ourselves, that God would love us so much to allow things to come into our lives that highlight those superficialities and highlight that actually our faith is a mile wide and a millimeter thin. He loves you so much he's not willing to walk on by. And maybe even now as I'm speaking that by his spirit, he is peering into the temple of your life and you can feel it. What do you do with that? Maybe you're going through a process where you feel like the tables and the chairs and everything that you held dear is being thrown around. Not just gently shifted, but something is happening in your world where you feel like it's being just kicked over. And we're quick to blame Satan. And we're slow to recognize that God will use all things. That perhaps the turning over of the tables, turning over circumstances, turning over of family, turning over of business or money or finances or health or whatever it might be, is actually an opportunity for us to come to him and say, okay, Lord, I recognize that I made this the holy of holies. Forgive me. Have your way. As I was reading the Palm Sunday narrative in different Gospels, it occurred to me, and please listen to this, the same crowd that sang Hosanna, 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 three days later was screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Same crowd. They flick so quick that there needs to be a depth of faith in our culture today that when we take the kingdom out there, and please let that be our priority as a church as we move into prayerfully a new season of ministry, let that be our center, that we are kingdom influencers. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, comes into our world and he brings correction through confession and alignment because he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And then we take that into the kingdom 
and we sing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. So is it the good things in the wrong location that is the problem that we have? Because Jesus is simply not willing to walk on by. And we don't like it. You know, imagine somebody coming into your house. Maybe you invite them over for dinner. You say you welcome them in, you come in, and then they come in, they take their shoes off because that's what we do. And then we sit down on the couch, and this person here, so and they sit on the couch, and then you say, would you like a cup of coffee? And you make them feel very welcome, and, and then you go into the kitchen, and, and maybe you're making that coffee, and you come back into the living room, or lounge, as we call it in Britain, which I think is the proper term. Um, you come back into your living room, and you find that the person, you just left them five minutes, and they've rearranged all your furniture. Some of you are hyperventilating at the thought of that because your cushions are so perfectly placed with a little divot in the middle. Who came up with that? Why is that a thing? I don't understand. You puff up your cushions, divot in the middle. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, praise the Lord. <laughs> For those of you who feel convicted about your divots, I'm just going to let the Lord do whatever he... Maybe he's peering into the world, your temple... And just see divoted cushions everywhere. But you come back in to the living room and they've shifted the couch over. They've maybe moved the table out. They've changed the curtains. You're like, first of all, how did you do that so quickly? And secondly, what? This is my house. This is my house. Jesus, this is my house. You don't get to shift the furniture. I've worked hard for this furniture. This furniture is my furniture placed by me, and it's good furniture. There's nothing wrong with it. But Jesus then whispers, or maybe shouts, no, this is my house. This is my house. You know one of the greatest doctrines in the Bible that needs to be preached more and more in our culture is the beautiful beautiful truth that as Christians, we believe in something called Imago Dei. Imago Dei basically means we've been created in the image of God. Imago, image, Dei, God. Image of God. It is the highest life value you can give somebody when you say that the fingerprint of God is on their life. You put that center into your life, then suddenly all those things that we all strive for, the peace, the justice, and everything else that I mentioned at the beginning, it all comes under the banner of Imago Dei. Our culture says you're an accident. Actually, you're fortunate that you weren't gotten rid of, but you're an accident. Because the result of that is, if you don't believe in Imago Dei, you forget ownership. Because if I've been created and you've been created in an image of God, and if you want the biggest clue to that, it's actually not me convincing you, it's just you searching inside. You want to see the fingerprint of God? Ecclesiastes 3 says that every one of us has been had eternity placed into our hearts. That's the greatest clue of the image of God in your life. And if you have the image of God on your life, what it means is, is that we are owned. This is his house. This is his house. And he has graciously given me the ability, the scripture says, to even earn the money that I earn. That everything that has been given to me has been graciously given to me by him. And if we look through the life lens like that, and suddenly generosity and simplicity and Sabbath and spending time with Jesus and learning from his word all suddenly makes sense because I am his. 
Jesus says, actually, I have absolute authority over your life. This is my house. And he will protect his house. And he will protect you. Life might not turn out the way that you planned it. Those cushions might not look very divoted for a while. You might come back in. It might take just even this morning that you walk, walk out and you go, man, I've just had my furniture of my life all rearranged. And maybe I'm praying that Jesus will quickly whisper just after, yeah, because I love you too much to leave it the way it was. Because as you look at the temple, the temple is all about having this personal encounter with God. That's why it existed. You see, the, we, have this, we have this sense of God's presence. You don't need to be a Christian to sense God's presence. I'm going to give you a clue as to how I know this. If you go on Instagram or, do you remember Facebook? Those of you under, under 25 for the Gen Zs and uh, millennials, younger millennials in the room, Facebook was this, was this thing. Trust me, it was big. Not anymore. Um, Instagram, or you look at anything like that, what you'll see is beautiful vistas, mountains and lakes, and just God's Bible says God's creation, shouting out his glory. And, and you can go, even if you're not a Jesus follower, you'll go into and you look at Instagram, and invariably every second, <laughs> some of you are just going to be so mad at me right now, but every second photograph of this beautiful mountain, there's somebody doing this. You know who you are. Those of you who just didn't have a clue what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Just, just let it go by. But there's this sense of glory that you just want to, what is it that when you get into the presence of God, you want to lift up your hands? Because it's a recognition of how small I am compared to that. You know, this isn't my line, but it made me laugh in one sermon I read. And these guys says, you never get anybody going up to the mountain, standing at the top of the pinnacle and going, I am great in comparison to all this. There's a humility there because we've come face to face with the presence of God. But God in the Old Testament made an actual place in the, temple, in, the, in, the, in the tent where you could actually get into the tangible, raw, powerful presence of God. Life-changing. So life-changing, it will actually kill you if you are not worthy to go into the Holy of Holies. So only the high priest could go in there once a year and because they were encountering God. You see, the invite from Jesus Christ this morning as we look towards Easter and Good Friday is the invite to say, come in to the experience and encounter God. You are welcome into the Holy of Holies because I stood in the divide, is what Jesus said. That you can have an experience of God where you're not just looking at him in the hope that one day you'll hear an echo clearer, but you're actually having him live in you, above you, around you, as part of your life. And then he calls us to take that into the world. Because the question is, is how do we deal with those issues in our lives, like worry and anger? How do we deal with the angst that we feel? How do we deal with the shame? How do we deal with the things that have been done by you and to you that have resulted in sin and shame in your life? How do you deal with that? Because let me tell you, deep breathing, as much as I like breathing, it's godly, but deep breathing and going for a long walk doesn't hack it. We need an experience and an encounter with God. 
We can't come to him in any old way, though, which is why the second thing that the temple was there for in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, it was a place of sacrifice because it was needed. You can't just come to him in any old way. There's been a breach. There's been a breach. That he is so perfect and so holy and so powerful and so raw in his presence that literally we'd get snuffed out. Look at Moses. I can't let you look at me, Moses. That there's that, that sense of God's holiness that is powerful, that we're quick to say that God is very loving, and that's true. But he's also very holy, which is why in the Old Testament we, we have this system of sacrifice. So as we take everything that he's been given to us, and we allow it to be like terminate on us, and, and everything that we have been given to us, we just think, okay, this is for me to enjoy. All the time, we're squandering the thing that he's given to us as a gift. We go to other places, we go to other places in our lives, and we forget about him. It's like we, we go to a different city instead of the city of God. We go to a different city, and just like the prodigal son, we squander all that has been given to us, and then we expect just to come striding back into his presence. So God in the Old Testament provided a, a way for people's sins to, uh, to be covered by blood sacrifice, because the ultimate, as it's an old-fashioned word, wages of sin is death. You want proof of that? Look at the number of people in our world right now where the lights have gone off. It's not just ultimate end death, it's actually feeling of death in life. See, the ultimate end of allowing all the things in our world to terminate on us selfishly is death. And so death, the scripture says, and this is offensive, but the scripture says it's offensive, so I'm on solid ground. That the only way for our sins to actually be uh, forgiven because God is so pure and so holy is for there actually to be some imputed punishment. That our sin in the Old Testament, their sin was imputed, placed on a goat or a sheep, and, and then sacrificed because that kind of uh, um, dealt with the punishment that was required. Well, that doesn't seem fair. We love justice in every area of our lives, apart from when it comes to us. <laughs> Everyone else can get justice. I'm good with that. Needs more. But not me. Because I, I don't like the idea, but God is so perfectly holy. So this sacrifice that happened in this place, this encountering God, allowed access into the presence of God. But Hebrews tells us that it was incomplete. The sacrificial system was incomplete because they had to keep on doing it and it could only be done by one person, the high priest. And so, Jesus comes into the world and he says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This temple, he was referring to himself. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. That's why he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way to great change. I am the way to thrive. I am the way to see transformation in your life. But I will come into my house and I will rearrange the furniture. But the transformation that that brings will bring freedom. 
and it will allow my people to go into the world and show the kingdom off so beautifully that the essence of God himself will go into the places that you and I go into. It's not just a sense of God from creation, <laughs> but God inside, actually meeting God, living inside you, because he is the sacrificial system now, once and for all, for all who believe in him, for all who come to him, for all who submit themselves to him, recognizing that he is not only king of the city when he came in riding on a colt with people singing Hosanna, 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 but he's also king of the temple. And so as we come and I invite the worship team to come back up and I just want to finish with a beautiful song that is so, so beautifully uh, apt for the message this morning that as we come into his presence, I want to ask you the question, have we moved to a different city that we started in the right place allowing Jesus to put the furniture wherever he wants, but over time we've somehow taken it back under the belief that the things that we are placing in the holy of holies in our lives are good things. But to actually say in this song, as we stand, because I'm believing that I'm standing, I'm believing you stand with me when we worship, is say, Lord Jesus, have your way. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light. He is my strength. Because that is the prayer. And parents, can I tell you, let me give you the best piece of parenting advice that over 20 plus years I've learned. The most loving thing that you can do for your child is to love Jesus more than them. You want to know the best parenting class? It's you getting up half an hour earlier. I know, we were there. That's crazy. My kid gets up at 3.30. I know, we've been there. Thank you, Zoe. We were there. But the best parenting class is those moments that you spend with Jesus at the beginning of the day. Grandparents, exactly the same. Husbands, wives, the most loving thing that you can do for your husband or wife is to love Jesus more than them. In Christ, can we have those words up? In Christ alone? In Christ alone. Not in you, my husband. Not in you, my wife. Not in my child getting the best grades or being the next David Beckham. It's not going to happen. I've got to get him to hockey. I've got to get him to volleyball. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. In Christ alone. That is the hope our society needs. That is what our society needs is making Jesus Christ alone in our Holy of Holies. Amen? So why don't we stand together? Let's sing. Let's, can we sing this really like, let's just blow things up in here as we declare and pray that in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light. He is my strength. And He is my song. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word this morning. Just so challenging and encouraging. Love your scripture, Father. But Lord, I pray that as we sing this song as a prayer united as his church, 
that, Lord, as we resound off the walls, that, Lord, that you would break into the walls of our heart. And that, Lord, you would fill this place. That, Lord, that you would fill this place and fill us with encouragement and hope that we have everything we need in you, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, peer into the temple of our lives. And Lord, we hand over our furniture. We hand over those things we have placed so important. Because you are our king. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.